Today, I want to talk a little bit about the Bible. We've got coming up prayer, relate or relationship, serve, journey, and multiply as those seven that will, will come up. I wanted to start here with just this little, uh, this little New Testament. Okay, we might have seen that in the kids' uh, room. Actually, I stole it from their, from the, uh, one of the nursery uh, classrooms. But I'd remembered a story that uh, actually some of you might, from way back, might remember Judd Whitefield, who was converted by Stanley Ship out on the oil fields. Uh, he was in, it was in Wyoming at the time, and Judd worked in the oil field, and he was a smoker. And he came to Christ. And when he came to Christ, he was very converted to Jesus and to changing his life and to changing his behaviors and his priorities in his life. Well, he always had his Lucky Strike cigarettes right here in his pocket. And he would easily he'd reach down and pull out his Lucky Strikes. And so he, after he w was, uh, became a Christian, he put a little New Testament right here, right where the cigarettes belong. And, and we're, we're, you know, that was his spot in his pocket and that instinct and that because he was such a smoker for so many years, he would reach down to get a cigarette. And there was the word of God speaking into his life. And I just love that as a visual and as such a metaphor and thinking about how we need to continue to relate to the scripture and how it can go about changing in our lives. And I was thinking about my own relationship to the Bible. And uh, not to bore you too much with that, but I think most of us can think about our own history as it relates. The first memory I have, and I don't even have this Bible, of course, anymore, but was a huge, big old black Bible that sat on the coffee table in our home growing up. Don't ever remember opening it. We never used it. Okay, but it sat on the coffee table and it was this big old thing that some traveling salesman, you know, it was about, I'd say about 35 pounds. I mean, this thing was a huge big old Bible, but it came, became that centerpiece in the, in, on the coffee table. And the only thing I can ever remember it being used for was it was very good when I did my leaf collection in junior high and it smashed those leaves. You know, so that, that's how it was used in our home. Okay. But then I can think about my own, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus and receiving a Bible. And, and when I was in college during that time and, uh, Becky actually, it was either my birthday or Christmas. She bought me a Bible and she bought, she got one and she went out and she had went to the bookstore and purchased this Bible. And it was a leather bound, uh, Bible and had my name on it, and she got one that was an American Standard version. She meant to get a new American Standard version, but she got the American Standard version, which had all the these and thous and all of this, and so, and there was my name. She couldn't really return it, so she had to go back out and buy another one with a new American standard, and that was the Bible that I sort of learned and cut my teeth on, so to speak, after becoming a Christian. But then I can remember not too much longer, one of the brothers in the campus ministry got me a Bible, and this one, we called this the sword, the sword, okay? That's what this was. You carried it around in your pocket, 
And I still carry this one from time to time and I'll go on a hospital visit or whatever. But you know, the scripture says that the, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And, and so this was, it was one of those where brothers sharpened brothers through the use of the word of God. And uh, I hope I'm not boring you with all of this, but I just think about my own journey. And I can remember after becoming a Christian and going back home and just very, very uh, enthusiastic and fired up and and uh, uh, probably a whole lot of other things in terms of the way I saw my faith, a little dogmatic, uh, put it that way. And I went home and my uncle and aunt at the same time had just been come from a background where they were very, very indifferent to their faith, and they'd kind of grown up, grown up in nominal Christian environment, but had, but had come to Christ and to the point where my uncle, who had worked with my dad in a contracting firm, quit the firm, sold his half of the business, said, I've got to change my life. I've got to change my relationship with my wife. I want to raise my kids differently. And, uh, and his whole life was reoriented by God's Spirit. And in the midst of that, he was reading the living Bible. And I was so, I don't know what all the adjectives to put with that, but doctrinal in the way I was looking at the world at that time in my own coming to faith, that I, I passed judgment on him and took issue with the fact that he was reading this Bible that was a paraphrase as opposed to a translation. I regret that. I've repented of that. And yet, sometimes, as I think about our relationship with the Bible, it's a really a strange. And uh, all the ways that we might have related to the Word, at least it wasn't indifferent, I'll put it that way, but it was so often a little off. Well, I continue on. I can remember then, uh, you know, doing in graduate school, studying the Greek Bible. Never got very good at it. Okay, never a very good Greek student. You know, I mean, about all, in fact, it, this thing is hardly worn out at all. I just, uh, I, I might say that, you know, we've, we've got better Greek scholars in, in this church than, than myself, but a whole different orientation to the scripture by reading the Bible in the Greek language and recognizing some nuances that we might not otherwise see. And again, drawing on people that, uh, that have studied this for years that can help us in this journey is a wise, wise course. So then along the way, I got my, maybe my first, I don't even know if it's my first one, but one of my preaching Bibles. So this is one of my preaching Bibles. That really looks nice, doesn't it? Look at that. Okay, put this thing on it. And now, Larry Frankie probably would say as a librarian that I could rebind that, but that thing, I think it's gone at that point. So then I had another one for a year, few years. You got to have the Black Bible if you're the, you know, the, one of the, that's the real preacher Bible, right? Right here. So kind of wore that one. That one's got my name on it. Then at some point, I, I went through this phase and, and, and talking to people where, where it was, uh, okay, 
uh, the student and study Bible, you got to do the RSV. That was a lot of the graduate work and that I had uh, on, uh, did here in St. Louis. Then somebody uh, turned me on to the spiritual formation Bible that picks up on a lot of Richard Foster's celebration of discipline kinds of things and, and, and helps us with that. And that goes on and on. There's the Mosaic Bible. There's, uh, there is, uh, I got one that was called an Urban Bible. That was a, had a, really some very good, uh, good, uh, help along the way with the urban Bible. And then, so at some point then in all of this, I ended up, and the other day I, we were at the conference, I told Susan, uh, Autry, I said, I saved a table for you. I just put down a Bible there where my, put the Bible down where, uh, you can use that, that particular spot. And she said, I couldn't find it couldn't find your Bible. And I, and I, well, you didn't look, it says Dorothy Dismuke. So the, this is Becky's mom who died a few years ago, but this is my Bible now. I just use this one. Okay. So what happened over the last 10 years, I just look for ones that people forgot around the church. Okay. So there's that, you know, I got the, the Thompson family. I have no idea who the Thompson family are. I use their Bible all the time, you know, okay? So I'm just, this is the way it's gone. All right. Is there any bigger question than how we relate to the Bible? It has these massive claims. It has this capacity to unite us and to divide us. It has power to save us and to shape us and to not just save it, shape us as individuals, but as a community of people and as a society. Our constitution, our laws, our language, our culture are shaped by this book. And yet there are so many challenges along the way. It takes time to read it and to think about it and to discuss it, and it never seems like we have the time. In some ways, you read it, and right now, gosh, Betty's got us on our, our, project, our Bible project plan, reading Leviticus. That's some tough sledding. You know, it seems so archaic in uh, some ways, and so it lists, it's like an artifact. And there's lots of words. There's a lot of words in there. And, and we're a very visual society. And so the, all the words is even very difficult. And we got to just admit, it is, it's a strange book. And the more, if you, if you don't think it's strange, you haven't really read it. Okay. You've just pretended to read it and you've taken the Christian line. But if you actually read it, there are a lot of strange things in there. And uh, as Richard Middleton said, truth is stranger than it used to be. The Bible in a postmodern world. He wrote a book on this in 1995. Think about where we are now, almost 30 years after that. So it's got this variety and diversity and narrative and history and poetry and law and doctrine. I don't want to act like it is simple or straightforward and give you some little uh, skimpy uh thought about the scripture. It's complex. 
How do we even interpret it? How do we read it? What does it mean? We have our traditions about that, but where are we as a community in relation to this book? I think about Dr. Jerry Jones, who's here in this town, the former head of the Bible department at Harding, and uh, a year or two ago, in a group of meeting with, uh, with area ministers, he, he said himself, he said, I don't read the Bible the way I did when I was head of the department at Harding. I have changed my understanding about how I read scripture as I have gotten older. And he said, you know what, now I'm 80 and I report to no one. So I'm going to read it in the way I believe it's to be read and interpreted in the way it is to be interpreted. So how did Jesus understand it? And how did Paul read it? How did the ancients read it? And how did the early Christians live without it and spread the gospel for hundreds of years? And they didn't even have this amazing, amazing stack. How did the church control the Bible? How did the reformer see it? How did the Gutenberg printing press exploded, how did the enlightenment of the last few hundred years dismantle this scripture, and how do we ignore it? I'm just asking. So many have drifted or walked away from it because it seems like some of these Old Testament passages are, are inscrutable. And there are other sections that are simply revolting by modern sensibilities. Some of it's boring, particularly we're in the book of Leviticus now, and I have to say, some of it's boring. Some of it's confusing, some of it's intriguing. And so many would say today, take issue with the church and Bible churches because there are these unacceptable demands by an ugly God. Might be how they would see it. So what is your relationship to the Word of God? Because does any of it really matter unless you've thought about that? Here's the big idea this morning. You become what you love. And whatever engages your heart shapes your life. Let me look for just a couple of minutes at Psalm 1. I love that passage in Psalm 1. I want to point out the outlook of the passage, the engagement that is invited by the passage, the timing, and the outcome. And I'll do these in brief. First, the psalm says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. We want to be that blessed man. And it says, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That word delight, a key word for our disciples here at McKnight Crossings, and you'll see it on the banners as you're coming in. Delight, encourage, serve. Delight. Why do we have those banners? It is perfectly illustrated here in Psalm 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That is in the scripture, in the Bible, in the word of God. Now we think about that is the outlook. How about the engagement? Here it is, to meditate 
on his law day and night. It's our relationship to this word, to this scripture. Eugene Peterson said it this way, and I think meditation provides this vivid word picture. And he pulls this from uh, the book of Isaiah, but he says it's like a lion that is growling, that is chewing a bone, that's positioned between its paws, that is giving that bone its full attention, that is savoring it, that is slobbering on it, that is salivating over its prize. And we do that same thing as we meditate on the Word of God. And the timing that he points out in the passage, on his law, day and night, it is methodical, it is consistent, it is, is like our own breathing. It is dependent, it's not occasional, it's not a religious activity on a checklist, it's not even a part of a morning routine, but it is continuous that in a way that we stay plugged in through this constant meditation. And so the picture in this psalm is a tree. And the tree, as you read this tree that is now bearing fruit because it is because of its connection uh, uh, to it's it, the, to the water that the stream is much like Jesus relating to the vine in John 15. The scripture says he's the vine. We are the branches. We abide in the vine. And if you remain in the vine, you will bear much fruit. You see the relationship of John 15 to what's going on in this passage where that person, this blessed man who is meditating on the law day and night is like that tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. We've got this outlook. We've got this disposition toward the word. We have, we have uh, this uh, as we uh, think about the the passage, in addition to the outlook, we have this engagement through meditation. We have it happening continuously. And finally, the passage would say the outcome is that there is this evergreen tree. The result of meditation on the scripture day and night. Get this, church. The result of looking at the Bible is not all the answers. The result of looking at the Bible is wisdom, is skill in how to see your life, to see yourself, to see your marriage, to see your relationships, to see one another, to see how to live in the world that God has creative, created. That's health, that's fruitfulness, that's prosperity. That is what disciples who are, are rooted in, who are well-watered well and well-rounded, who are nourished. Don't we all need to be fed? The tree nourishes, or the water nourishes the tree and provides shelter. And that outcome of the psalm is prosperity rather than destruction, the destruction where the chaff is blown away. What is your relationship to the Word of God? I want to give you three points, three takeaways. 
I hope these will resonate. The first one is this. Engage the Word of God regularly to find God's story and yourself in it. What's happening as we read the Bible, and maybe we call it worldview, it's not about you. It is about God's dream of redeeming and caring and transforming his creation both now and into the future. But we get to be a part of it. And so we read to find God's story and to find ourselves in it. Read a book title not too long ago. It's called this. Life's too, life is too short to not be religious. And I think what the author meant, I didn't read the book, but I like the title. And I think what he meant by that is making up your own story is exhausting. And so I ask you, what story are you a part of? Can you find yourself in the right story, the story of Scripture that has a beginning and it has an end and we're somewhere in the middle of that and you can find the right act in the right story where we are now living in the age of the Spirit, in the age after Jesus Christ has come, before His second coming. Uh, we are in the age of the kingdom. We are in the age of the kingdom of God is already and yet not yet. In the age of God working through His Spirit, in the age of the Great Commission. Do you know your place in the story? We read Scripture to understand the story and to find our place. Number two, to engage the word for wisdom on living fully in God's world. Let me say it again. I said it earlier, but do not simply read for answers as if the Bible is the ultimate answer book. I don't think it was actually written with that in mind. Engage it for wisdom, answering, how then shall we live? How do we stay evergreen in times of real challenge? How do we engage and discern the culture around us? How do we encounter and uh, battle, and I should say not encounter, but counter our sinful nature? How do we counter the arrogance of our time? How do we engage and be spirit-led one of our values? Remember the tree? How does it prosper? It in, is engaged to be nourished. All of us must eat. The healthiest eaters see food as fuel. Might this also be true in the realm of the Spirit? Number three, engage the Word to know the Lord. I want to put up a visual, because that seems so obvious in one sense. But there's my picture. This is a finger pointing to the moon. 
Since the Protestant Reformation, a little over 500 years ago, we have been trying to read and evaluate and decipher and explain, and churches have done this ad nauseum to the point of splitting into so many hundreds and hundreds of denominations because everybody thought they had the corner on what is right. And what we have done, maybe not in large part, and this, this metaphor might break down at some point, but I think what we have done is we've focused on the finger. And we've evaluated the finger in every respect. The finger is the pointer. And we said, well, my finger and our finger over here is better than your finger. And we've kind of gone into this discussion in a lot of different ways. And it, and, uh, but here's the point. The finger points to the moon. And if we miss, if we get preoccupied with the finger and miss the moon, we have missed the story. And while all of this conversation and attention and division and even bloodshed, if you go back through history, there is the brilliance of the moon and the glory of the moon. John chapter 5 and verses 39 and 40. And those of you who've been here for a while know that I've uh, spoken on this before, but I love this passage that speaks to this point. He says, John, Jesus is saying, you study the scriptures diligently. Wow, isn't that what Jeff's saying? We should study diligently? Yeah. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus is saying. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You're preoccupied with the finger. You've missed the moon. What if we could turn that around? We read the Bible not to defend the Bible or as an exact blueprint, but to see and honor and love and enjoy the moon. The one and only to whom the figure finger is pointing from many ages and many teachers and many faith traditions who have all done it imperfectly. We garner insight, wisdom, Pointing to the moon. One more passage. John 20 and verses 30 and 31. We'll finish. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In John's gospel. Many things that he did, he said, many activities, miracles they performed, healings, teachings, not even recorded. So we have an incomplete set from a data standpoint already. However, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life. Wisdom. In his name. How do you relate to the Bible? Will you engage it to be fed? To be nourished? To be healthy? To be fruitful? To see and know the beauty and the glory and the mercy and the everlasting, unconditional, unsurpassed love of God in Jesus Christ. That's my prayer.